There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Billy. Billy. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. Happy fall. Happy October. Today is October 1st. Well, it's October 1st while I'm recording. Depending on how long editing takes, it could be a day or two later, but I'm still celebrating. I love fall so much, and the fall equinox was bullshit out here in Philly because it's been around 90 degrees almost every day for the past two weeks. But not today. It was about 50 when I woke up this morning. Just perfect. I hope wherever you are, you're enjoying a beautiful fall day. Or maybe I should say a beautiful day, because depending on where you are, you may not get to see the leaves changing this time of year. And that would be something I would sorely miss if I had to live anywhere else other than the Northeast. I wouldn't be able to live without that. So what do we have in store today? I can tell you right now, we're all going to need a feel-good episode after this one because today's story is fucked up. Seriously, this case is batshit crazy. It also has elements of the tale that are somewhat disgusting. I'm not kidding. It's the sort of thing that could make you sick. You know from listening to any of my true crime episodes, I typically leave out the more disturbing details. The Gary Heidnick episode is probably the only one where I shared more details than usual because the torture he inflicted on his victims was such a huge part of that story. But I think that's the only one. Until now. I promise I'll give you fair warning before I share anything I believe could be really disturbing or off-putting so you can fast-forward 30 seconds and skip those parts. This is a true crime episode. It's not a murder or an unsolved case. It is a story, though, that went on much longer than it ever should have. Our story starts in Winfield. That's a section of the city in West Philadelphia bordered by Fairmount Park and the Schuylkill River to the east and neighborhoods like Overbrook and Narberth to the west. It's the edge of the city in Philly where the old, enormous row homes of West Philadelphia start to give way to streets with smaller row houses built in the 40s and 50s. Winfield bumps right up against the suburbs. It's a middle to upper middle class neighborhood, much the same as it was 40 to 50 years ago when a young man named Eddie Savitz grew up. Eddie was born in 1942, one of four boys to Paul and Ann Savitz. Eddie's parents were Russian immigrants who taught their sons the value of a work ethic. Eddie's parents ran an arcade in Center City at 16th and Market. Eddie and his friends spent many an afternoon there as preteens playing pinball and girl watching. Eddie Savitz was something of a big man on campus at West Philadelphia High School where he graduated in 1960. He may not have been the best-looking guy, but he was attractive enough to catch the eye of female students. One young lady in particular was Judith Woodman. Judith was Eddie's high school sweetheart, and eventually he married Judith in 1963. Eddie graduated top in his class, as in the top. He was valedictorian of his graduating class, and he actually won something called the Gold W, which was the highest of three prizes at West Philadelphia High School that students could earn for the quantity and quality of their extracurricular activities. He was the editor-in-chief of his high school yearbook, and he was vice chairman of the school senate. Eddie sang in the choir. He played piano and organ in the school orchestra. When he graduated in 1960, Eddie Savitz wore the laurel wreath pin, 
a symbol of the Laureati Society, which was the highest honor in West Philadelphia High School. With a resume like that, it's no wonder his peers voted him most likely to succeed, best student, and most versatile. In his yearbook, his friends declared he would someday become Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. A quote in his yearbook said, watch out for that headline, anticipating the day his friends would see it announced in the paper that Eddie Savitz was a tremendous success. And that's exactly what he was poised for, success. Savitz was the only West Philadelphia high school recipient that year of a full scholarship to University of Pennsylvania. Eddie Savitz married Judith Widman after he graduated University of Penn in 1963 with a degree in economics. Not surprising, considering the methodical and meticulous approach he had towards his studies, Eddie was called obsessive by some of his classmates. He was detailed. Every paper had stacks of accompanying index cards. Economics requires a similar level of detail, so it seemed like the right fit for Eddie. His wife Judith was an elementary school teacher who left teaching to pursue law. And it seemed that Eddie would follow in his wife's footsteps because after he graduated from Penn, he enrolled in their law school. By 1965, after just two years at Penn Law, Eddie left University of Penn and enrolled at Temple to pursue a master's in music. Eddie had been a member of the Men's Glee Club at Penn, which was kind of a big deal. He was their rehearsal pianist, and he performed with them at large galas. Getting his master's in music would give him the opportunity to further his passion for music and the piano. He studied musical literature, but that didn't stick either. By 1967, Eddie Savitz left Temple. He left the idea of careers in law and music to fall back on his undergraduate degree in economics and joined his brother at his insurance and consulting firm, the Savitz Organization, in 1968. Eddie Savitz certainly isn't the first person to drop out of a master's program. That in no way means he wasn't still destined for success, as his high school and Penn classmates always assumed. His brother's business was a very successful one, and as senior principal of the Savitz organization, Eddie had the opportunity to benefit from that success. Now, I told you this was a true crime episode, so you may be thinking, okay, good story about this random guy from West Philadelphia. Doesn't sound like someone who would be at the center of one of the city's biggest scandals in the last 50 years. Eddie Savitz sounds like an average 30-something guy, smart, did well in school, Everyone expected more from him, but sometimes that's just not how life turns out. That doesn't mean he didn't do well for himself. And I'd agree with you. I'd agree with probably most of what you're thinking right now. But you see, I know where this story is going. Perhaps success wasn't the right word when describing Eddie Savitt's future. What he was destined for was infamy. In 1978, when Eddie Savitz was 36 years old, he was arrested for indecent assault. There weren't many details about that charge or what was behind it. It was one or two sentences in a police blotter in the Philadelphia Inquirer back then, and that was about it. Because of his brother's connection in the city and the fact that Savitz was a first-time offender, he was enrolled in a rehabilitation program. It was actually an accelerated rehabilitation program because it lasted only six months. And his record was expunged. Poof. No conviction. No history of arrest. Eddie Savitz was sent on his merry way to conduct whatever life he'd been living before this arrest. 
In the early 70s, his wife Judith left him, they divorced, and Eddie was a bachelor for the first time in his life since he was a kid. Just Eddie, his grand piano, and his desires in a big old empty brownstone. What's a lonely 30-something guy to do? Well, Eddie spent his time volunteering in South Philadelphia with at-risk youth. He also spent his time buying dirty underwear and socks off neighborhood boys. It started as early as 1975, but it would be 1992 before the city really knew what was happening. The kids, though, the kids, especially young boys, they knew all about Uncle Ed, also known as Fast Eddie, for decades. I hated his guts. I went up there for the money. That's all it was. It was like a natural thing. You need money, you go up to Fast Ed's. Sell them your socks and you sell them your underwear. Sell them your shit. They say they only let him have their underwear, but that's what they all say. Who knows what they really did with him? I told the counselor I never did nothing with him or anything. Just gave him my underwear, took his money, and that was it. In November 1990, Eddie Savitz was brought up on morals charges in connection with the purchase of dirty underwear. Yeah, you heard that right. He bought someone's nasty-ass stanky drawers. And he was cleared of those charges by a common police court judge in Philadelphia. Maybe that was because regardless of what Eddie did in private, publicly, in the Philadelphia business arena, Eddie was very well respected. He was a top-class actuary in the city, and in the 80s, he was considered one of Philadelphia's leading pension consultants. He was even featured in a story in Money Magazine in 1988 because of his position on making the most of your corporate retirement fund. He still demonstrated that obsessive personality focused on details. But again, that's not a bad thing when you're working with people's money. So this is the sort of guy who would buy someone's dirty underwear? No way. Yes way. Just about a year after Eddie Savitz was cleared on that morals charge, a 20-year-old Philadelphia man went to the police in September 1991 to file a complaint against Eddie Savitz. This unnamed complainant told Philadelphia police it was common knowledge to young men, especially those from St. John Newman High School in South Philadelphia, that people visited Uncle Ed. This man claimed on August 22, 1991, he and a 17-year-old friend went to Eddie Savitz's apartment in the Wanamaker Building on Walnut Street. That's in Rittenhouse Square, one of the most affluent neighborhoods in Philadelphia. He said they watched porn with Eddie. He saw a Polaroid camera and drawers filled with hundreds of photographs of young men, and many looked much younger than the complainant. There was also a cabinet filled with brand new packages of underwear and socks. This man told police he personally sold Eddie his underwear and socks for $15, the pairs he wore to Eddie's apartment. Eddie offered to pay him more if this guy would let Eddie take nude pictures of him or let Eddie perform oral sex on him, but he refused. In October, just one month after the report about Eddie Savitz to Philadelphia police, a counselor at St. John Newman High School, again, South Philadelphia, was working with seven kids when they said, should we tell him about Uncle Eddie? Ron Powers was a counselor at St. John Newman from 1989 to 1992. One of the kids said, we can't tell Ron about Eddie because he said he has to report child abuse. Ron uncovered the story of Uncle Eddie from this group of high school boys, which he reported to the Department of Human Services. And the Department of Human Services seems to have sat on it for months. 
The stories of these seven students from St. John Newman High School in Grays Ferry, a South Philadelphia neighborhood, matched the story reported to police in September. But the police didn't have corroboration or any other witnesses until DHS came forward and shared their report with Philly PD. It took six months for an investigation. Of course, that's after sitting for almost 20 years from the first time Eddie propositioned a young boy for his soiled underwear. But it was almost six months that Philadelphia PD, Philadelphia Department of Human Services, and Catholic Archdiocese of Philadelphia knew something was going on in Eddie Savitt's apartment before he was arrested. When everything came out, there was a shitload of finger pointing. Each leg of the investigation blamed the other for delaying their efforts. And at the middle of all of this were the kids of Philadelphia, all boys, many of them students at St. John Newman High School or residents of the Grays Ferry section of the city. There were also kids from other parts of Philadelphia, too, from Kensington, from the Great Northeast. But Eddie seemed to prefer the kids of Grays Ferry. That probably went back to the time he spent working with at-risk youths in community programs in the 70s in South Philadelphia. The police claimed they didn't get the names of the seven accusers from St. John Newman's until the DA met with attorneys for the Philadelphia Catholic Archdiocese and forced, their words, the church's cooperation in the investigation. The church says that didn't happen, and the reason the Catholic Archdiocese was attached to this at all is because the boys who complained about Eddie went to a Catholic high school. Eddie was arrested on March 17, 1992, six months after the report to Philadelphia police in September 91, 18 months after he was cleared of morals charges, 14 years after his record was expunged for indecent assault, and almost 17 years after he began abusing boys and young men in Philadelphia. Before we continue the story, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and we'll be back in just a minute or two. When we return, the episode gets darker, and I'll talk about everything that was uncovered after Eddie Savitt's arrest. We're going to be discussing very mature and somewhat uncomfortable subject matter, so listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the new podcast, We're All Just Pretending. It's a podcast that has elements of Dear Abby with a twist of post-secret. Every episode, I'll read listener questions and provide advice and insight as a friend. My own pod friends will even join in and offer their advice on parenting, relationships, and even give you really bad advice on purpose. Since we all have secrets to share... There'll also be a segment focusing on letting the skeletons out of your closet. If you're looking for advice or want to share a secret, head to allpretendingpod.com. And remember, we're all just pretending here. Hello, fellow skin suits. This is Angel and Ember. Deep down, do you have a secret passion for true crime, sarcasm, inappropriate jokes, but you still want to hear all those lovely details? However, you still need a little bit of humor to get you through those dark moments? Then come hang out with us over at the Color Me Dead podcast. We try to balance both humor and facts perfectly. We also go on some pretty extraordinary squirrel hunts. (laughs) We can be found on iTunes and all other podcast apps. Come over to Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and see us at Color Me Dead podcast for the latest updates and gory chat. We release on Wednesdays because on Wednesdays we wear murder. Don't forget to spay and neuter your pets and stay out of chalk lines. 
This is Brianna and Kelly from Murder Dictionary Podcast. We go from A to Z, exploring different topics or motives each week. We've covered axe murder, killer kids, necrophilia, and occult murders. Murder Dictionary gives tons of facts and details, balanced out with humor. If you want a true crime and chill, or test your trivia knowledge with our serial killer games, or if you like lesser-known cases you may not have heard before, check out Murder Dictionary Podcast. The abuse started in Eddie's Brownstone Row House on St. James Street in Philly. Exactly when it started is a little uncertain, but it was sometime around 1975, so a few years after his divorce. Young men, boys in Philly knew if you needed fast money, you went to Uncle Eddie. Fast money is what eventually led to one of his other nicknames, Fast Eddie. You could get money for the movies, money to take your girl out for a cheesesteak, money for weed in the 70s, money for harder drugs in the 80s. You could make a quick 5 bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, depending on what you did, what you gave him, or what you let him do. You knew about him for years, and then you were old enough for it to be your turn. Then, your friend goes up there and he comes back with the money. He tells you everything. The guy wants your socks and your underwear. And he'll pay you. Whatever happens, it's on you. Eddie Savitz was a fetishist. That sounds like a dirty word, and depending on what your fetish is, I guess it could be. For those who may not know, fetish is specifically linked to sex. Not any sort of appeal or desire, but specifically a sexual appeal or a sexual desire connected with something in particular. It can be an inanimate object or a particular part of a person's body. In the case of Eddie Savitz, His fetish was boys' dirty underwear and dirty socks. Gross, I get it. My sentiments exactly. And at the same time, I was so unfamiliar with the concept, I felt I needed to dig a little deeper into why people have a particular fetish for soiled undergarments. Oh, I found so much more than I bargained for. And I'm only going to share a little bit with you. I found an article from a young woman who sold her used underwear online as a way to make extra money. She was working a minimum wage job, barely making ends meet, even with roommates. And after stumbling on a Reddit thread, of course it was a fucking Reddit thread, about the joys of used undies, she anonymously sold her worn underwear on eBay. She claims she made $75 within an hour. There are actually panty seller groups and third-party websites who will sell your used undies on your behalf so you don't have to use your address or even a P.O. box, the things you learn on the Internet. In Japan, there are shops called Brewerseras that sell primarily previously worn underwear and school uniforms from women. So like I said, I found a lot more than I bargained for. I'm the sort of person that even if something leaves me feeling a little queasy, if it's between two consenting adults who are of age, of sound mind, not under the influence of alcohol or drugs, I say, who am I to judge? It may not be my cup of tea. That doesn't mean it's wrong. In the case of Eddie Savitz, these were not consenting adults. These were children. Eddie Savitz claimed he never engaged with boys younger than 16, but that's simply not true. 
In the 70s and 80s, the boys who went to Eddie Savitt's house on St. James Street and then his apartment in the Wanamaker building in the late 80s and early 90s, they may not have realized this was abuse. To many of these kids, Eddie was just the weird old dude in a fancy house. Although not really that old, but to a teenager, someone in their 30s or 40s is definitely old. They thought he was a harmless freak. Who cares if I sold him my underwear? I can name 10 other guys who did the same thing. He's a freak and he doesn't make you do anything you don't want to do. So what's the big deal? It was a huge deal. Eddie's neighbors in the Wanamaker building thought he was a drug dealer. They never imagined what was happening in his apartment. They noticed young men, boys, teenagers, preteens coming and going at all hours of the night and on the weekends. And they thought he was selling these kids drugs. Finally, his neighbors complained to the police. And that's when an investigation began. Sure, the report from DHS in December 1991 helped corroborate a complaint made in August that same year. But it was the complaints from the neighbors, the rich, white neighbors, in the posh, upscale apartment building in Rittenhouse Square that finally prompted an investigation. Interestingly enough, when these young men would come to Eddie's apartment, the Wanamaker building is the sort of building that has a doorman that has somebody sitting at a front desk. Each time a young man came to the building, Eddie had to be buzzed. He came down, got the young man, and brought him up to his apartment. So whoever was working the door and working the desk saw this happening all day and all night and never reported it. As a result of the complaint from neighbors, police were able to set up a wiretap on Eddie Savitt's phone number. In one month, there were 3,790 calls made to Eddie's apartment. About half of those were on the weekend. That's because Eddie preferred his young gentleman callers to give him a heads up first before they came over. Not everyone did, but those who had his phone number made a point of calling first. After the phone calls, Philadelphia police were granted a warrant to set up video surveillance in Eddie Savitt's apartment. They captured Eddie bringing two 15-year-old boys into his home. The boys were there to sell Eddie their underwear. Eddie asked them if he could perform oral sex on them. They said no, and then the police made themselves known. Eddie was arrested on March 17, 1992. He was charged with involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, sexual abuse of children, indecent assault, and corrupting the morals of a minor. After his arrest, two other underage boys came forward, one who'd been visiting Savitz for three years since 1989, and another who claimed Savitz paid him for both oral and anal sex when he was only 14 years old. I want to give you a little warning before I start this next section. It's not terribly disturbing, but it is really gross as fuck. When the police raided his apartment, they found close to 200 trash bags filled with dirty underwear and socks. In many cases, the underwear and socks were cataloged, four pairs in smaller bags, sometimes they were clear plastic bags, with a young man's name and date of his visit printed on the bag. How many small plastic bags with four pairs of underwear and socks in each do you think could fit in a large trash bag? In a storage unit Eddie Savitz rented in South Philadelphia, police found another hundred or so bags of the same, totaling over 300 bags of used underwear and socks belonging to boys all over Philadelphia. Eddie's habit of using index cards when he had to turn in a paper back in high school and college continued into adulthood. 
Police also found highly detailed record-keeping of dates, names, visits with many of the boys that Eddie abused. In addition to the used clothing, police found cabinets filled with brand new packages of underwear and socks to replace the dirty ones he bought from these young men. They also found close to 5,000 Polaroid photographs between ones stored in his apartment and in the storage unit. These were pictures of young men. Many of them were naked. Eddie would sometimes take photographs of young men just hanging out in his apartment, then, at least for the boys from St. John Newman High School. Savitz would show them yearbooks from their school. He threatened to figure out who they were from their pictures. That way, when he asked for them to do something a little more than just sell them their underwear, they were afraid to say no. Savitz was exercising even more control over some of these young men. Police found yearbooks from St. John Newman High School when they searched Eddie's apartment. He'd circled pictures of boys to whom he was particularly attracted. Okay, this is a warning. What I'm about to share next is fairly disgusting. If you want to skip the next 30 seconds or so, that's totally okay. And if not, I warned you. Underwear and socks weren't Eddie's only fetish. Some of the photographs police found were images of boys in the process of eliminating their bowels. Eddie paid young men to go to the bathroom in his home. Police found evidence, I don't even know what to say, shit, in pizza boxes. It was being stored and collected. I'm not going to tell you what he did with it. Just knowing that he kept their shit is bad enough. If you want to find out how he collected it or why, you can find that online yourself because I I can't go any deeper than that. Sweet baby Jesus. Oh, my God. And I wonder why my friend dared me to tell this story. There are so many quotes from anonymous boys in Philadelphia saying it was just my underwear or it was just shit or it was just a picture. They didn't realize what he was doing to them was assault. Eddie Savitz was older. He was in control. He had money. These were mostly underage children, and they were too young to really understand what was happening to them. Plus, they lived in a time when Eddie Savitz's actions may not even have been seen as sexual assault, certainly not in the 70s, possibly not even into the 80s. When Eddie was arrested in March 1992, it was also discovered he had full-blown AIDS and he suffered from the virus that caused AIDS for about two years prior. On close-up this morning, the legacy of Uncle Ed. Uncle Ed is Ed Savitz, a businessman infected with AIDS, who prosecutors say may have solicited sex or sexual acts for cash with hundreds of Philly area teenage boys for more than a decade. D.A. Lynn Abraham, I know you all remember her name from previous episodes. She'd only been in office a little less than a year. When she announced to the city a man had been arrested for sexual assault of minors, she withheld Eddie Savitt's name, but she told the city this man had AIDS. She didn't consult with any of the AIDS organizations in the city to determine what would be the best way to share this news, not just with the city, but with potential victims. It was like she just dropped a bomb on the city. And it was left to the Philadelphia AIDS Task Force, Choice, and DHS to help the city and all of these kids make sense of all of this. If I had to do it again, I may have called in a couple AIDS organizations before I made the announcement. But otherwise, I would have done the same thing. You have to follow the credo of doing the people's business. 
During the press conferences after the arrest, D.A. Lynn Abraham was the object of ridicule and protest from gay rights activists, from AIDS awareness organizations. To some, she presented the arrest of Eddie Savitz and his illness as if AIDS were connected to his criminal actions, as if anyone who commits a crime like this could get punished with AIDS. People threw condoms at her, literally. She was at a press conference on April 1st in 1992, pulling condoms out of the collar of her suit. Okay, don't worry. They were they were unused. They were still in the wrappers. The Philadelphia AIDS Task Force encouraged anyone who had contact with Eddie Savitz to get tested and get counseling. They offered extended hours. They were open six days a week, no appointment necessary. And these kids were terrified and they were ignorant. They were lacking knowledge about AIDS and how the disease could be spread. There were kids afraid they had AIDS because they let Eddie touch their genitals. That's how ignorant these kids were on the subject of this health crisis. Many of these kids were from strict Catholic homes, old-fashioned Philly Catholic homes, who thought if they got AIDS, they would go to hell. They just didn't know. They didn't understand. And then there were other ones that walked around like Fast Eddie was a joke. Yeah, so what? I sold him my underwear. So what if I let him touch me? It doesn't mean I'm gay. They didn't understand that sexual orientation had nothing to do with this. Eddie Savitz was a pedophile who assaulted them and they needed help. Many of them didn't get it. Some of them did, but some of them also didn't stick with it. A lot of these youngsters are going to have problems down the road. When all the hysteria and outcry and news media attention die down, we may find that there are really a lot of kids laid to waste. When Eddie Savitz was arrested, police stated the number of boys he paid for one service or another was in the hundreds and could possibly be in the thousands. He was initially released on $3 million bail. His brother paid 10% to get him out of jail. And almost immediately after the arrest, dozens of boys and men, some now grown who had visited Eddie in the 70s, came forward. Many of these young men told the same story. They went to Eddie's brownstone on St. James Place or his apartment in the Wanamaker on Rittenhouse Square on his lunch break. Eddie was dressed in a three-piece suit, looking the part of a wealthy, successful Philadelphia businessman. Or they came over after he finished work. He'd visit with two or three boys, take a nap, get up, bring them back into his bedroom. They talked about other jobs they did for Eddie, running errands like grocery shopping and picking up his dry cleaning or light maintenance around his apartment, and he paid for all of it. Between the odd jobs was the underwear and the assaults. My son was coming home with new socks and underwear. I called the sex crimes unit and they told me my son would have to swear out an arrest warrant. I said, forget it. My son will never press charges. Eddie had a type. White, young, a little on the rock and roll side, clean, not necessarily clean cut. Sometimes there would be as many as 20 boys waiting in his apartment. Eddie was thrown back in jail. More charges for sexual assault, more charges for corrupting the welfare of a minor, more charges for indecent assault, you name it. He was held on $20 million bail this time. His attorney fought for months to get his bail reduced. Eddie Savitz was held in the prison wing of Girard Hospital because his medical condition quickly worsened. By December 1992, his physician said he had barely six months to live. And in March 1993, one year after his arrest, he was released from Girard Hospital and moved to an AIDS hospice. His health had deteriorated so severely in the year after his arrest, he was unable to stand trial. He had severe brain deterioration. But to get out of the prison ward at Girard Hospital, his family still had to post bail. 
Eddie Savitt's attorney, Barnaby Whittles, was able to convince a judge to reduce his bail to a little less than $2 million, and his family put up the bond so he could be moved to hospice. In the year Eddie spent in prison, none of the young men he assaulted reported to have contracted AIDS. His attorney, and the city, and DA Lynn Abraham, all took this to mean Eddie Savitz didn't infect anyone with AIDS. Maybe he didn't. He said he wore a condom, but many of his victims said they never saw any. Maybe some of the young men were too afraid to get tested. Maybe they were too afraid to come forward and put a face and a name to the anonymity and anxiety they lived with for being a victim of Eddie Savitz. Eddie was moved to hospice care on March 17, 1993, exactly one year after his arrest, and he died 10 days later. His trial was scheduled for April 5th, but no one got their day in court. No one testified against Eddie. There was no trial. Although there is someone who did speak out about five or six years ago, a man named Greg Buccioni. Greg was 13 or 14 when he claims he met Eddie Savitz at a program for at-risk youth in South Philadelphia. Greg's parents divorced when he was young, and he described himself as a tough street kid. Meeting Eddie Savitz seemed like a saving grace when he needed it most, until Eddie asked him if he was well-endowed. Greg Buccioni didn't even understand what that meant. Greg visited Eddie for a few years, until one day in late 1979, Eddie wanted to take him to an event outside of Harrisburg. Greg Buccioni claims this was a fundraiser for the newly established Second Mile, the organization run by Jerry Sandusky. Part of that trip was to hand-deliver Greg's application for Second Mile, but Greg Buccioni claimed it was also a chance for Eddie Savitz to show photographs of naked boys to fundraiser attendees. Greg called the event a society of pedophiles from Philadelphia and New Jersey, even though Second Mile was being promoted as an alternative to juvenile detention for troubled boys. Buccioni stated in interviews with Philadelphia and New York newspapers he met Sandusky twice at these events, and that Eddie Savitz knew Jerry Sandusky through mutual political acquaintances and their efforts at political fundraising. Greg Buccioni was supposed to attend Second Mile, but in 1980, a fight broke out at Eddie Savitz's home. I found two very different accounts of this one event. In one interview in July 2012, Greg stated he beat up Eddie after Eddie tried to molest him. Eddie called the police but decided not to press charges against Greg. In another interview earlier that year, it reported the altercation was the result of a larger fight between Greg and a group of boys waiting at Eddie's house. And the fight carried over into the street where it became public, the police were called in. Again, Eddie didn't press charges. Regardless of what really happened, Greg claimed it was those events that derailed his opportunity to attend Second Mile. And considering what we now know about Sandusky and that program, Greg is lucky he was never enrolled. The fight, whether it was one between Greg and Eddie or more than one boy involved, provided Greg Buccioni the opportunity to tell police what Eddie did to him and other boys from South Philadelphia. That was in 1980. Greg claims the police did nothing. They didn't listen to him. They didn't believe him. There are people in Philadelphia who've questioned Greg Buccioni's story. Not that he was one of Eddie Savitz's victims, but the connection he alleges between Eddie Savitz, Jerry Sandusky, and Second Mile. Second Mile was founded in 1977, so the timeline fits. 
By 2007, that organization touched over 100,000 children every year through early intervention, prevention, and community outreach programs. It's absolutely possible Eddie Savitz knew Jerry Sandusky. He could have even attended fundraisers for Second Mile. Greg himself acknowledges the scrutiny he's received over the years. Why would I lie? He asked reporters. Well, why would he? He has nothing to gain. There's no one for him to sue. Eddie Savitz is dead. It was the Second Mile scandal and accusations against Sandusky in 2011 that brought everything back for Greg Buccioni. His personal experiences with Eddie Savitz, his trip out to Second Mile in the late 70s. He can understand what those kids went through, the children who were abused by Sandusky. He understands grooming because he went through that himself. Many of Eddie Savitz's victims did because in the 70s, Eddie found his victims through community programs supporting at-risk boys. Hundreds, possibly thousands of boys from Philadelphia over the course of almost 20 years were victimized in one way or another by Eddie Savitz, the boy who was voted most likely to succeed. Sometimes you think you know someone and on a dime their behavior changes. Their demeanor can seem totally different. Did they really change or did the walls simply come down and you caught a glimpse of the real person inside? A very special thanks to the following people for the voices you heard in today's episode. Jeremy Collins, host of podcasts we listen to. Sam Culper from Breakers Podcast. Brianna, co-host of the Murder Dictionary Podcast. Eddie Gill and Kim, co-host of Harry Potter Revisited Podcast. Thank you also to Emmy Sarah for the music you hear in every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website, emmysarah.com. That's E-M-M-Y-C-E-R-R-A dot com. And you can download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.